1: With Dr. Frank Turek, ladies and gentlemen, you know that over about the past decade on this program, I've referenced a book called "The Devil's Delusion: Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions." The author is Dr. David Berlinski. And I'm privileged to have him as my guest today. Dr. Bolinski is an author, thinker, professor, and he's a self-described secular Jew who with wit and elegance, as you'll see, dismantles the assumptions and assertions of Darwinists and other atheistic materialists. He does this in his interviews, and his books. Dr. Bolinski has his PhD from Princeton University not far from where I grew up. He's taught at Stanford and Rutgers. He's a fellow with our friends at the Discovery Institute. And as you know, we've had Stephen Meyer on this program several times. So Dr. Belinsky is part of the Discovery Institute. He actually lives in Paris under the shadow of the great cathedral Notre Dame there. And Dr. Belinsky, let me start by asking you this. First of all, it's a privilege to have you on, but I've seen some kind of crazy uh, plans to... uh, to convert or to renovate the the cathedral there. One of them has a pool on top. Are they expecting mass baptisms or something over there? What's going on over there in Paris?
0: Well, I I think those claims, uh, to a certain extent, one hopes are exaggerated. The French government and the French people reacted with undisguised horror when they were proposed And of course they were absolutely right the plans were grotesque they were architecturally grotesque they were theologically grotesque nonetheless a lot of architects thought hey they're a great idea let's pull put a pool on the top and make this uh, (laughs) a community swimming pool for all faiths and all religions oh Uh, those plans have been dropped there was another grotesque plan to uh replace the spire on the roof uh with with glass instead of uh uh, the ancient material, solid wood, but uh, it's, it's a kind of a episodic outbreak of insanity that we are very familiar with, with with respect to the architectural tradition. These architects go nuts every every now and then.
1: Now, have they made any? Have they made any progress on the renovation so far?
0: It's very slow. You know, I talked to the guys. I live right next to Notre Dame. So I, I talked to some of them. I talked to some of the engineers. The problem is the fire was much more devastating than anyone realized at the time. I was right there. I saw the whole structure burn. Mm. But, uh, you know, you're dealing with 800-year-old blocks uh, of sandstone, of lime, and nobody knows the uh, damage that, were, that was caused on the inside by water much more than fire. So there, there are real questions about the structural stability of the building, and those questions are not going to be resolved anytime soon. You know, the president, the French president, Macron, said, well, in five years, we'll rebuild the whole structure. Nobody, Nobody's counting on that anymore. It's going to take 20 years to get that whole thing settled. Well, It was a it, massive, massive amount of destruction, just quite incredible.
1: That's Unfortunately, it kind of parallels the destruction of the faith in France, I believe, uh, over the everyone past. Everyone
0: uh, thought that immediately. That was the mm. thought that everyone in France had, And I think it was beyond France, too. Everyone had the same thought. What an unpleasantly appropriate symbol.
1: Mm. Now, you have written what I think is my favorite book on atheism and its scientific pretensions. That's your subtitle, but it's so well-titled and so well-written This book, The Devil's Delusion, is a book that anyone can read, ladies and gentlemen. And despite the fact it was written in 2008, it is an evergreen book. It's a book you can pick up today, and it's just as fresh as it was written 11 years ago. How did you come about to write this book? It seems to be a response partially to the Dawkins uh, book, The God Delusion. But how did you come about to write this, Dr. Berlinski?
0: Well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it was a response to to the book by Dawkins, but also there was a book by Christopher Hitchens entitled Mm -hmm. God Was Not Great. And um, what uh, what struck me as curious and what struck me as provocative, certainly, is that this was not simply an expression, uh, an overflow of village atheism, the sort of stuff that's been perennial in Western culture for the last 2,000 years. It, it was uh, different to the extent that it was invoking the authority of the scientific experience to make the mm-hmm. claims. And uh, I thought that was particularly egregious and particularly outrageous. The scientific experience does not provide atheism with that kind of authority. And I think you were very kind in saying that the book still has some topical relevance. I think it is to that extent that it is relevant because I meet people uh, very regularly with the same impression well science shows I mean, the, the the prolegomena is always science has shown science mm. shows science will show mm. and the fact of the matter is that um, questions about the existence of the deity are neither in the premises nor the conclusions of any of the great theories mm. So you have to be very careful what exactly does science show and it turns out it doesn't show very much it leaves the questions open and that, as you, you quite perspicuously noted, was my motivation for writing the book. But I have to admit, it was an exuberant experience. I love taking off after guys like Dawkins or Hitchens or Sam Harris. They're unbelievably tempting targets. I don't know whether you agree or
1: not. <laughs> well, um, no, I do agree.
0: That self-satisfied, smug, just begging to be slapped in the face. So I was happy to oblige. <laughs>
1: Well, you did so very well, sir. And in fact, um, I've had a couple of debates with Christopher Hitchens myself, and I thought that your little essay in the new book that you've written, which comes out on November 19th, ladies and gentlemen, it's called Human Nature by Dr. David Berlinski. And by the way, this is what the Chicago Tribune says about uh, this book. It says, quote, on the very cover Berlinsky puts any topic, oh, excuse me, Berlinsky plus any topic equals an extraordinary book. Well said. Oh, a nice
0: comment. Was that yours it, or the Chicago Tribune?
1: That's the Chicago Tribune. It's hard to believe it. That's what they said. The, 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 uh, there must be somebody. I did not uh, know about that.
0: Hey,
1: it's, it's right sure on the it's cover. Not my <laughs> Oh, it's, it's the Chicago Tribune. And, of course, the great Victor Davis Hanson says a brilliant indictment of scientific groupthink. That's on the back cover. And this is Dr. Berlinski's new book, Human Nature. But your, your essay in there on Christopher Hitchens I thought was so insightful. I had a couple of debates with him myself, and as you put out, Hitchens was not really interested in the theological arguments. Despite trying to claim no. that science has disproven God, when I pressed him a little bit on the evidence for the beginning of the universe, which you cover in uh, The Devil's Delusion, he just said, well, I'm not a physicist. Well, then why is he bringing up arguments related to science then?
0: I think you're absolutely right. Look, look I, have to, I have to begin any remarks. I liked Christopher Hitchens. I fact, did too. I, I don't know anybody who disliked him. He was an intensely appealing figure. He met a tragic death. He suffered very bravely, and I, I think he was in many, many respects an admirable human being. At least his capacity for suffering was uh, quite extraordinary, and being an, an improved and made more virtuous through his suffering. But uh, as far as a philosophically acute intelligence or a logically acute intelligence, he knew as well as anyone else, you or I, that he lacked in that department. That was not his uh, strongest suit. He was a polemicist. He was a large, gregarious, bold, uh, and dramatic figure. That was Christopher Hitchens.
1: Yes, and for me, he was evidence of a divine being because the qualities he exhibited in his his rhetoric were just approaching divine i mean i'm sitting there uh, david in, in my first debate with him and he's the first person i ever debated believe it or not other than my wife who annihilates me routinely uh, that
0: goes without saying
1: yes yeah, <laughs> but he he was so good at rhetoric that i'm daydreaming during my first debate i'm going i really like this guy i don't know what he's saying but it just sounds so good and he was it just brilliant hurt. at that <laughs> It didn't hurt that he had
0: a beautiful baritone, beautiful That's bass, correct. and a wonderfully plummy English accent, and people tended to overlook the vacuity of what he very often said. He wasn't driven very hard by his opponents, I have to say that.
1: No, and was- uh, I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to seeing your debate with him. I didn't realize you had that. We're talking to Dr. David Berlinski. His book that you need to get is called The Devil's Delusion, Atheism and His Scientific Pretensions. It is a enjoyable, elegant read. You will enjoy it. And uh, we're going to get into that book right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes. Don't go away. All right, this is from the flap of The Devil's Delusion by my guest today, Dr. David Berlinski. This is written by uh, Dr. Berlinski, Here we go. Has anyone provided a proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have the sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything so long as it's not religious thought? close enough has rationalism in moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good what is right and what is moral not close enough has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good not even close to being close Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy of thought and opinion in the sciences? Close enough. Does anything in the sciences or in their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational? Not even ballpark. Is scientific atheism a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt? Dead on. That is from Dr. Belinsky's book, The Devil's Delusion, you have a way with words, sir. Uh, you were not an English major. You were a philosophy major and a mathematician. How did you get so good at prose? Yeah,
0: I wasn't even a philosophy major. I studied medieval history in college. But don't you uh, have when a PhD from anything? Princeton? Anything I got a philosophy? PhD from
1: Princeton.
0: Yes. Yeah. But in college, I studied... His, when I was studying anything, which wasn't a whole lot of time devoted to that particular <laughs> occupation, I spent most of my college years chasing girls and playing pool, but... Uh, may, perhaps your, your listeners shouldn't be entitled to that privileged information.
1: <laughs> well, I noticed in reading Human Nature, another one of your books that I, I sense is going to come out in a couple of weeks here, uh, that you were skeptical of Darwinism back in the 1960s during your days at Princeton. Why did you doubt it then?
0: Well, it was very interesting when I when I was studying uh, logic and philosophy at Princeton. Darwin simply did not appear on anyone's intellectual horizon. The man's name wasn't invoked. The theories weren't uh, weren't discussed. And uh, I spoke with my graduate school roommate Daniel Messinger about it, and he said, "Well, I read orig- on, on on the Origin of Species." And I said, "All right, tell me what's what's inside." And so he told me what's inside, and I said, "That's it. That's the complete global explanation for the emergence and diversification of life." He said, "Yeah, well, that's it." And it was the, it was then. It was 1964. I said, "That couldn't be right. It just couldn't be right." So my my <laughs> doubts were very long standing. And they were confirmed afterwards, I discovered, much to my surprise, there were a lot of other people who had exactly the same reaction. That just couldn't be right. That doesn't sound like a scientific theory. It's vague. It doesn't really specify much. It doesn't answer the deepest kinds of questions about living system that we very naturally want to present to ourselves. And uh, it was a great pleasure discovering that uh, other people felt the same way. I published a paper in 1973 about what would be needed to make a, a Darwin, Darwinian theory somewhat more successful, it was in a paper in automata theory, and it's a kind of automata is needed—a pushdown storage automata—to look forward to at least anticipate, uh, so that uh, complicated structures could be put together. Without that, you have nothing either in language or in, in the establishment of machines. And I, I published it. The editor was a very, very good philosopher, Sidney Morgan, and uh, he said, well, you know, we'll publish it. It looks interesting enough. Uh, nobody's really interested in Darwin. This was 1973. Nobody's really interested in Darwin. Hmm. And uh, he said, well, we'll publish it. Um, we'll, we'll just stick philosophy in the title. So they called it <laughs> Philosophical Aspects of Molecular Biology. And uh, then I discovered other people felt the same way. My great friend in Paris, the mathematician Schutzenberger, Uh, I wrote to him, I sent him my stuff, he wrote back, we got together, and he said, it's just a preposterous idea that we have an explanation in these terms. Of course, he was delighted as a Frenchman to be denying an English theory. That was an additional (laughs) ancillary pleasure. But by the 1980s, there were a lot of people, a lot of people who were saying the same thing. But, but it I it first. I was there first.
1: You were there first, and and it, it didn't come on my radar until 1991 when Philip Johnson wrote uh, Darwin, uh, "Darwin on Trial," and of course he just passed on this book. week. Yes, it That's is. Philip and,
0: and, uh, Johnson had a terrific, a terrific influence.
1: I think he was probably credited with starting the modern ID movement that got uh, Stephen Meyer involved in it and many others. But you write in The Devil's Delusion. I love what you say here. This is page 186. You say, within the English-speaking world, Darwin's theory of evolution remains the only scientific theory to be widely championed by the scientific community and widely disbelieved by everyone else. No matter the effort made by biologists, the thing continues to elicit the same reaction it has always elicited. You've got to be kidding, right? Well, <laughs> what what has happened since 1973 when you started to see holes in the theory? What have we learned since then, Dr. Berlinski, about this theory of macroevolution? What are the other well, problems with it?
0: There are lots and lots of problems from my point of view, uh, which, is, which is not identical to Steve Meyer's point of view or to the other guys at the Discovery Institute. From my point of view is, uh, is this. Look, we've got 300 years experience now with theories and physics, and we pretty much understand what a good theory looks like. We've got Newtonian mechanics, we've got Clark-Maxwell electromagnetic field, we've got theories of relativity, we've got quantum mechanics, we've got quantum field theory, we've got the standard model. We're not moving in a blind way. We're not entering a dark room. We know what a scientific theory looks like. And knowing this, when we look at what biologists say about macroevolution, we know that just isn't a scientific theory. It's open-ended, it's vague, it makes no precise quantitative predictions it doesn't have a sound mathematical structure and I'm not the only one saying this. there's a whole Institute at Oxford now devoted to providing mm. the missing mathematical structure for evolutionary theory well if the structure is missing why the universal sense among biologists that the structure is complete there's something incoherent uh, a mark of uh, distinction or divagation between the propaganda effort which is relentless And the true state of the theory, which is completely incomplete, incoherent, vague, uncertain, unspecified. That's a remarkable fact, but it's not a fact about science, it's a fact about sociology.
1: Now, you have spoken in your uh, – another book that I have right here on my uh, desk called The Deniable Darwin, which is about 500 pages on Darwinism and the problems with it. Tell our listeners a little bit about the Cambrian explosion and the problems this creates for Darwin, Darwinists today.
0: It, it's one example, but it's by, by no means the only example. Look, mm-hmm. 500 million years ago, you look all the way into the remote past, and what do you see? You see a lot of weirdo – Things floating around in the ocean, the so-called Ediacaran flora and fauna, and they're they're truly bizarre creatures. And then, in a relatively short amount of time, say between ten and forty million years ago, there's a tremendous efflorescence, a burst of living systems, including the ancestors for almost all of the modern metazoan uh, flora and fauna. Um, And where the information came from, where the organizing principles came from for this Cambrian explosion remains profoundly enigmatic because these are creatures with no obvious predecessors. We can't find the predecessors, and we've looked. It's not as if we have uh, failed to look diligently enough. No, no, no. The looking has been very effective. We've exhaustively scrubbed the likely sites. And as far as we can tell, for the greater part of the Cambrian, we are dealing with the sudden emergence, the novo emergence of new life forms. That's kind of surprising, surprising under several different Uh, assumptions. For one thing, Darwinian Darwinian theory makes a, a very firm assumption and prediction that life is a matter of a continuously expanding proliferation of new forms. Continuous suggests there are always going to be intermediates, and with respect to the Cambrian, we can't find those intermediates. That is a signal, an important signal, that requires a kind of decisive explanation before anything about Darwinian theory can be accepted on its face. And the Cambrian is not the only example. There are very, very many examples throughout the fossil record where there seems to be exhibited in the record itself a radical form of discontinuity with something entirely new appearing on the one end and inadequate forebearers on the other hand. This failure of continuity has always struck me as the key ingredient in um, a scientific critique of Darwinian evolution. Bear in mind, it's not the only, only time we've seen something like this. At the end of the 19th century, physics, Newtonian physics, which is built on the axiom of continuity because all the functions are differentiable, encountered sharply discontinuous phenomena in quantum theory. Couldn't explain it. We needed a revolution accommodate the discontinuities. It seems to be a form of scientific heresy to say as much in, in biology. Maybe that's mm. changing a little. Maybe that's changing just a bit. But until the last five or six years to say, well look, exactly the same deeply singular evidence that we saw at the end of the 19th century in physics seems to be a feature of biology itself uh, immediately evokes the suspicion that in the very next moment I'm gonna advocate handling snakes. It's not good. <laughs> this is a well, scientific argument. Well, I, I must speaking in tongues, which always attracted yes. me. That's what well, the French always say when I start speaking French.
1: <laughs> well, I I saw you interviewed somewhere and I can't remember exactly where it was now, but it might actually be in the back of the human nature book, your new book, but Um, the indignation that the Darwinists immediately vomit out if you criticize, I don't mean just you, but anybody who criticizes Darwinism, seems to me that they're protesting too much. And you point out that if you're a Christian, they're going to they're call you a liar for Jesus. Now, they can't call you that because you're not a Christian, but they call you other names rather than dealing with your arguments. I'm going to ask you to be a bit of a psychologist in the last minute we have it here in this, uh, in this segment, Dr. Berlinski. Why are they doing this? Why are they so indignant?
0: Well, let's take two of the things that all men prize. One is money, the other is prestige. Mm. Uh, a stern advocacy in favor of Darwin's theory of evolution, has, tradition suggests, led both to money and prestige. If someone is criticizing the theory... There's an implicit threat that both are going to be withdrawn, or if not withdrawn, then at least tempered to a certain extent. So the the counter reaction is not unexpected. It's mm. not. Nobody likes to be criticized. And I'm, I'm including myself. Mm. I immediately form a suspicious uh, conjecture about anyone who criticizes me. And if I had mm. the choice, I would abuse him too or her. Mm. Fortunately, I'm not usually given the choice. <laughs>
1: We're talking to Dr. David Berlinski. He has several fabulous books. The Devil's Delusion is one. The Deniable Darwin is another. And the new one coming out in about eight days is called Human Nature. The name is spelled B-E-R-L-I-N-S-K-I. You need to avail yourselves of these works, especially my favorite, The Devil's Delusion. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We've got two more segments with Dr. Berlinski, so don't go away. Back in two. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk. My guest, Dr. David Berlinski, author of The Devil's Delusion, The Deniable Darwin, and Human Nature, among other books. Before we get back to Dr. Berlinski, I want to mention I'll be at the University of Maine in Orono. That's up near Bangor this Wednesday night for I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. That's November 13th, I believe. Check our website, crossexamine.org, for events. As always, any college event is always free to the general public. There'll be time for Q&A. So come out to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist this Wednesday night if you're a maniac, if you live up in Maine. Okay, back to my guest, Dr. David Berlinski. Uh, Dr. Berlinski, before the break, we were talking about some of the motivations that people might have for getting a little bit annoyed if you criticize the theory of Darwinism. It seemed to me, you, you, you had mentioned money and prestige. There's a, a another category that I think our friend Christopher Hitchens made quite clear with regard to the issue of sex. He didn't want God to exist, and he thought maybe a suggesting that, that he he does exist and that maybe macroevolution wasn't true would be to give in to a cosmic North Korean dictator, which, by the way, is great imagery if you're an atheist. I like the way Hitchens did that. But it seems to me there there, there are other motivations as well. That people. In fact, you write, I want to say uh, this is in... Um, this is in The Devil's Delusion. You write, uh, let me find this quote because it's very uh, very telling. Uh, what did I do with it? You write about assumptions. Here, here you say, arguments follow from assumptions and assumptions follow from beliefs and very rarely, perhaps never, do beliefs reflect an agenda determined entirely by the facts. Unpack that further, sir.
0: Well, I think the way we form beliefs is uh, still, in the 21st century, rather mysterious. We don't really understand how human beings come to the beliefs that we hold. It's certainly not driven by the evidence. Let's put that myth aside. Nobody mm. is driven by the evidence to form the beliefs that they do or have. Uh, and the evidence isn't irrelevant. It's just not probative or determinative mm. uh, Bishop Barclay has an interesting point. He says that the only thing that can influence a belief is another belief. He had a particular uh, philosophy of mind uh, in view. Uh, He thought the mind was the only real thing that existed in the universe. But the observation is quite distinct that we're influenced in a way that we have never successfully described by our other beliefs and it is kind of a closed circle of beliefs influencing beliefs where it meets the real world where the real world penetrates our system it's not entirely clear it's very hard to make that case you'll certainly notice You yourself, I gather, are something of a polemicist, or at least you participate in the debate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The number of times where somebody comes up to you after a discussion and says, as opposed to, I found your talks interesting, everybody will say that as a gesture of politeness. Mm -hmm. Um, But very rarely will they say, I've changed my mind, Mm -hmm. or your views have provoked me to change my mind. That doesn't happen a lot. So we're dealing with a situation antecedently in which many many positions are frozen and all that you can really hope to do is uh, take a hammer and give the ice of uh, self-possession a good sharp thwack Mm -hmm. sometimes sometimes it helps sometimes it doesn't help but anybody who participates in in uh, public debate knows as much that uh, beliefs are very sturdy creatures they're very resistant to change
1: Mm. Well said. You remind me of Philip Johnson's uh, use of the wedge penetrating the petrified wood of naturalism. Excuse me for interrupting you. It's an interesting talk. You know,
0: years and years and years ago, I worked at McKinsey as a management consultant. Mm -hmm. And I, I came across an essay by one of the senior partners, extremely smart guy, very, very impressive. Carter Bales was his name. And he said, how do we get something done? He was talking about working in a bureaucracy And he says, you can't take a chisel, you can't take a hammer, you can't take a saw. What you have to use is a plane, and you have to be extremely patient, and you have to plane that wood and then sandpaper it and sandpaper it and sandpaper it. And you have to be prepared to accept small changes. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a very wise declaration, I think, in philosophy and theology and modern scientific um, polemics, You have to be prepared to accept small changes. Things change incrementally. They don't change dramatically, unless it's one of those rare cases in physics where a decisive experiment or a magnificent theory appears. I mean, everything changed in 1905 with special relativity because Mm -hmm. everybody could understand it was right. Mm -hmm. But that's the exception. For, For most of the time, things change in a small way.
1: In fact you uh, have written I believe it's in the human nature that uh that ideologies change around the edges they do not cave in the center so it I does Yeah it does take a while for minds to change and I think they are changing in the realm of darwinism because as you well know they had the Royal Society had the conference in November of 2016 yes. looking for a new theory of macroevolution did you happen to attend that no. That, was that the one in London? It was. Yes, sir. And then Stephen Meyer and Doug Axe went and I guess a, a few other folks from the Discovery Institute. And yeah, the, I think
0: they, I was invited but decided I was just too inconvenienced to cross. <laughs> <the experiment. laughs> I don't well, like leaving my apartment in general.
1: Well, you're you're in the United States now, and for our listeners, look for Dr. Belinsky on the Ben Shapiro Show because he is about to record an interview with Ben Shapiro. And you know, Ben is a wonderful interviewer. He knows the issues surrounding intelligent design and macroevolution because he demonstrated that quite well in his interview with Stephen Meyer, a colleague of Dr. Belinsky. So, listeners, look out for the interview with Dr. Belinsky, which I assume will come out in the next few weeks, because uh, that's why he's in the United States right now.
0: Uh, I've made a secret vow to lapse into sullen irrelevance tomorrow. I mean, <laughs> I refuse to <laughs> ask a single question. I don't know please, that.
1: please. You, I, I think you're incapable of doing that, sir. So, I've seen it enough interviews it with you. Are. Yeah, so I had a enough. wonderful
0: professor of philosophy who had mastered that. This was in the old days where you can get away with it. His name was John Herman Randall, Jr. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, some somebody asked a question. He was, he always came to class smoking a huge cigar. <laughs> he puffed on his cigar for about five minutes, and then he gave uh, what I thought was one of the great answers in all of pedagogic history. He said, that's a stupid question. <laughs> <laughs>
1: There are stupid questions. Now, let me ask you this question. Um, first of all, I know everybody who's listening right now is going to want me to ask Dr. Berlinski what his religious beliefs are. I'm not going to ask him that, and I'll tell you why. Because he's asked the same question in his book, Human Nature, and I want you to get that book. So in the back of the book, there is a interview that he does, and he will you can see his answer there. So let's just leave it at that. But I do want to ask you this, Dr. Berlinski. If you suggest that maybe there's an intelligent designer out there, given the evidence, the evidence we see for intelligence, how do you deal with the so-called God of the Gaps fallacy when atheists or Darwinists will say, uh, Dr. Berlinski, first of all, you're not a biologist, and secondly, you're committing the God of the Gaps fallacy. How do you respond?
0: Yeah, okay. What's next? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, the god of the gaps fallacy has entered into the English language as a discussion stopper. It's like a door stopper. You put mm-hmm. it under the door in the hope the door is going to stop swinging. The fact of the matter is wherever you look at the gaps, I mean, imagine the number line, which is filled with a lot of little gaps. Wherever you really look, the gaps aren't getting smaller. They're getting more numerous and they're getting larger. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that that argument points to a real fallacy, I don't see the fallacy there. Uh, If you say God did it, that's one explanation. It may be a good explanation, a bad explanation, but it's not a fallacy. Nothing fallacious is being advocated. To the extent that argument is invoked, the counter-response is, well, a lot of gaps, We need a big fella to to deal with them.
1: (laughs) That's right. And I think some of the arguments that you've made and Stephen Meyer has made and others, Doug Axe, the folks at the Discovery Institute, when you're arguing it's possible there's an intelligent designer out there, you're not arguing from what you don't know. You're arguing from what you do know. And you've pointed out in the deniable, deniable Darwin that Paley's argument is still good—that a watch implies a watchmaker. When you find a watch, you don't you don't say, "Well, I just lack a natural explanation." You go, "There's got to be a watchmaker out there," and there appears to be anyway. So many aspects of biology, not to mention physics and other areas, that appear to require an intelligent. there's intelligence there's agency in there you've made that case in several ways in deniable darwin and the devil's delusion so friends you need to get those books Um, let me ask you this too you also say this uh well you, you point out that the hypothesis that we're nothing more than cosmic accidents has been widely accepted by the scientific community and you mentioned that richard dawkins bertrand russell steven weinberg others they have this belief as an article of their faith now why do you why do you use the word faith there
0: they revel in this belief. They can't get enough of self-abuse. <laughs> but there is a wonderful new word, phrase, that's entered into the English language. It's called humble brag, And I think it perfectly describes this. Uh, Dr. Johnson uh, had, a, had a, a wonderfully witty way of putting it. He said, you can depend on us, sir, that every form of self-criticism is obliquely a form of self-praise. It shows... That you have something to spare mm-hmm. i think that's exactly what bertrand russell and richard dawkins and christopher hitchens are all doing they're covering themselves ignominiously with the blanket of their own insignificance, but if they really meant that, they would not be covering them so fl- covering themselves so flamboyantly. They mean that they are pretty special anyway, even if they are of very little cosmic significance. But the whole thing is—is is rhetorically an exercise in any number of dissimulations. Uh, it's not meant seriously. It's not meant seriously.
1: Well. Uh- the the issue here, though, for them, it's—well, let's go back to Einstein's uh, question, why is the universe so comprehensible? Why is it—why com- can we even do science?
0: It's a good question, and I have no idea why it's so, but it is so, to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. The fact that we have magnificent scientific theories, and I would add uh, magnificent mathematical theories as as, as well— is a, great, uh, is a great gift, but it's an unexplained gift. I mean, after all, if you look at other species, dogs um dogs are in in their own way quite intelligent animals they get by very very well or lions or moose whatever you want but this particular aspect of cognition this particular acquaintanceship with the universe is not a feature of the dog's mind but it is a feature of ours and we don't quite understand why it's there and what good it does it certainly has nothing to do with survival In fact, Mm. it may lead to the opposite, given the existence of nuclear weapons. It may lead precisely to the extinction of the human race. Nonetheless, we have an unearthly capacity to form these profound, these deep, these rich, these intricate scientific theories. And they're just gifts.
1: And gifts imply a gift giver in my mind anyway. We're talking to the great Dr. David Berlinski, his book, The Devil's Delusion, Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions. Also, The Deniable Darwin, another book Dr. Berlinski has written, and the brand new book, Human Nature. You would benefit from all of them. I highly recommend you get them. I'm Frank Turk. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist in American Family Radio. In addition to the University of Maine, this Wednesday, next week, I'll be in McAllister, Oklahoma, Sunday all day. You can check out the website for more, crossexamine.org. Click on events. You'll see Frank Turek calendar go there. Talking to David Berlinski, in addition to his books, he's got some articles up on the Discovery Institute. And uh, Dr. Berlinski, I see this article you co-wrote with Brian Miller and Gunter Betchley. Uh, and a response to Jerry Coyne. What is that about?
0: Well, Jerry Coyne uh Jerry Coyne is a um, professor emeritus. He he was an evolutionary biologist. He wrote an interesting book about speciation. And uh, he published a critique of a video that appeared, oh, I think three, four months ago, in which certain claims were were made. And he thought he would publish a very authoritative critique and talk about the Cambrian explosion with an insider's keen point of view. And Gunter Betchley, who is a world-famous paleontologist, Brian Miller, who is a first-rate physicist, and mm-hmm. I uh, And um, we all put together a response, which was published interestingly enough, on Quillette, which does not usually publish these kind of responses, but it was published on Quillette, and it was very authoritative, and it was very detailed. It was certainly not a piece of rhetorical abuse. It was just a dispassionate analysis of the kind of claims that an evolutionary or former evolutionary biologist was wont to make about certain issues. And um, it was very satisfying to get that out, because I think people reading it at least I hope people reading it, would have the sense that uh, the diapason is changing. There are different arguments now on the Mm -hmm. table, and uh, it's been a long time and people have been arguing in this way, at least since 1859. Mm -hmm. But uh, there is a certain amount, a certain appreciation within the biological community, no matter how indignantly they'll deny any association with me or the Discovery Institute, that certain issues need to be resolved before anyone can claim that uh, biology is a science that is, in all respects, rather like theoretical physics. It's nothing like theoretical physics. Mm. So I think that was a good thing. I was very, uh, very pleased and proud to be associated with Gunter Betchley and Brian Miller.
1: And that article can be seen on the Discovery Institute website, ladies and gentlemen. So go to discovery.org and then search for Berlinski, and you'll find that article as well as many others. And as we've said many times on this program before, ladies and gentlemen, science doesn't say anything scientists do. All data needs to be gathered. All data needs to be interpreted. And you'll see when you read this article that when you look at the data, you have to decide whose interpretation makes more sense. And I think if you're reasonable, you'll see that uh, Dr. Berlinski's interpretation of the data, along with Miller and Betchley, makes a lot more sense than what Jerry Coyne is saying, but you have to read no the article to see. No decision
0: is required. We're right.
1: They're wrong. That's, <laughs> that's <laughs> right. That's right. What, what am I thinking, Dr. Berlinsky? Yeah, of yeah, course. Take it from me. Take it from <laughs> me. <laughs> it's correct. Now, uh, some internet atheists, they're really fond right now of making this silly claim that atheism is just a lack of belief in God. But you point out That atheism makes many assertions about reality. In fact, you say that atheism is an ideology. Can you unpack that for us?
0: Atheism is an ideology. I I think you have a vulgar way of uh, of capturing that, and something more sophisticated. Atheism is an ideology. It's a way of presenting yourself. And it offers um, a kind of snapshot appraisal of your character. If you say, I am an atheist, usually it's between the ages of 10 and 27. (laughs) Uh, It means you're defiant, rebellious, unwilling to truckle to authority, uh, completely convinced of your own assured place in the universe, and unwilling, like so many soldiers in the trenches, uh, to encounter religious experience only as a matter of uh, unpleasant contingency. But that disappears very quickly, and it's it's very vulgar. V.S. Naipaul, the great English writer, had a somewhat different perspective on exactly that question. He said, well, I find the idea of participating in religious life completely unacceptable.
1: Hmm.
0: Alien, in fact. And nobody asked him, well, why is that? I was always tempted, but of course I didn't know V.S. Naipaul. I don't know if I would have had the nerve to pose the question in just those terms, but it is an interesting question. Well, very often sensitive, intelligent, well-read people find that any participation in the in a religious life or a- any, any attempt to capture a religious experience is profoundly troubling to their self-image because I think that's what's really at issue. Mm-hmm. To be a religious man or woman in the 21st century or even the late 20th century within the Western world is to disassociate yourself from prevailing ways of self-presentation. And that comes at a price. Mm, that does mm-hmm. come at a price. It's quite different in the Muslim community. Bear in yes, mind. it is. Mm-hmm. It is not a universal, uh, a universal part of experience, and that is one reason that the Muslim community appears so overwhelmingly threatening to Western liberals, because here are here are a billion people who take who take their religious com- uh, devotions very seriously. And nobody knows quite how to deal with it. It's it's a, a, an aspect of contemporary life that's fraught. Might as well just say it. It is fraught.
1: Mm. Last time I was in Paris, I went, ventured into a neighborhood. Now, I've only been there once, unfortunately, but uh, it it seemed like I was in Saudi Arabia. Where were you? Uh, I don't know. I was lost. <laughs> so in Stalingrad. Yes. And um, you live there. Um, no, not had
0: neighborhood. No, no. No, I'm but you live in Paris,
1: it. and is it is? Are there two different Parises, if you will?
0: No, not really. I mean, there's there's some some I mean, Paris, as you know, is divided into arrondissements. There's some arrondissements that that uh, you know, if you're smart, you won't walk around at three o'clock in the morning. If you're smart, mm-hmm. but. Uh, they're not dangerous in the way that say a new york neighborhood could be dangerous or los angeles or san francisco neighborhood could be dangerous they're just sullen and seedy there's quite a bit of vagrancy quite a bit of homelessness people sleeping on the street and if you're a woman dressed inappropriately you can expect a certain amount of harassment there's no question about that but i would say only two or three of in paris are like that certainly nothing like that in mine, which is the fourth Quite different, so it depends where you go. Just I just like saw. Any other city.
1: I just saw today that the French police, not to go too much off on a tangent, though, have cleaned out a number of the the shanty towns underneath yeah, the highways and freeways. Months. Oh, they do. They, okay. they
0: call in the newspapers. They call in the photographers. They clean it out, and a week later, they're all back.
1: Hmm. hmm. Let me ask you one more thing. We're, we only got about four minutes to go, but I found a wonderful essay in your new book, um, the Human Nature, about Peter Abelard, uh, the 11th century philosopher and logician. He got involved in an illicit relationship, which you describe, and he was made to choose between his head and his heart, basically. Can you share with our audience the conflict that Abelard had And in fact, you point out it's a conflict that we all have. We have a conflict between logic and love.
0: Abelard, um, actually, the building where they consummated their affair, Abelard and Eloise, the young woman, is uh, maybe 50 feet from my own building. And The (laughs) stones are still there, the old structure is still there, there's a sign. Abelard was an extraordinary extremely clever logician. Uh, he came to prominence around 1110, 11, 1115, 11, and he was a man in his 30s. He had taken orders, of course, and uh, he was widely known to be insufferable because his victims were outraged at his cleverness. And he was walking along the quay one day, which I can see from my window. He met a beautiful young woman, not clear how old she was, anywhere from 15 to 22, and he was immediately smitten. She lived in a building adjacent, and he became her tutor. Uh, Mm. Oddly enough, immediately promoted himself from logician to lover. They carried on a torrid affair. They were discovered, and uh, her uncle uh, put together a dreadful plot to humiliate uh, Abelard by castrating him. It was successfully accomplished. He was devastated. Eloise was sent to a, um, a nunnery. Mm. Much against her will, she spent the rest of her life lamenting the loss of the love that she cherished to that extent, to an extraordinary extent. And she, she has some prayers, a deeply moving prayers, where she said, uh, even if it meant the loss of my soul in paradise, I wouldn't give up the love that I, mm. I bought toward Abelard. And Abelard's life was shattered and broken, of course, as you can imagine. And uh, you can see very vividly in this famous 12th century love affair, the deep conflict between the longing for purity in every human being, which is expressed by logic, and the joy and exuberance of carnal relationships and loving carnal relationships, which is expressed in the affair that was doomed from the first, as all loving relationships are doomed from the first, simply in virtue of being loving relationships among human beings. Mm. And it's very poignant, and it's not resolved, and it is a tension, and it is there, and th- these are the, the facts of life as we have to bear them, mm. Mm. enjoy just, them or endure them.
1: Well, I just it just struck me that all of us know there are things we should do, and yet there are things that we would love to do that we shouldn't do. <laughs> and it's a tension. It's a continual tension and a continual conflict. And as, as Christians try and say, is that we... We 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 try and resist our our idols and try and put Christ at the top and we don't always do that. We fail. Not
0: but, easy. But if if you do anything else, do read mm-hmm. the letters between Abelard and Eloise. They're among the imperishable masterpieces. Are they?
1: So, Are oh, they? they're well, just,
0: hers especially.
1: Well, Dr. Belinsky, it's been it's been a great pleasure having you on. We're about out of time, but I just want to thank you for your work. The Devil's Delusion is one of my favorite books on uh, so on glad. atheism, and uh, the new books, uh, Deniable Darwin, twenty ten, and the brand new book Human Nature are also wonderful reads. So, Doctor Belinsky, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to look You're for you on the Ben welcome. Shapiro Show. Thank you so much, Thanks sir. So thank you. The- That's Dr. David Berlinski. Again, you can find more about him at the Discovery Institute. Go to discovery.org. And again, his books, The Devil's Delusion, which should be the first book you get. Uh, Get that book. Read that. You will enjoy it. It is well-written, elegantly written. A lot of wit, a lot of sarcasm, a lot of laughs, and a lot of great insights. So check it out. Don't forget, friends, I'm at University of Maine this Wednesday for I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an atheist. And then this coming Sunday, next Sunday, I'll be in McAllister, Oklahoma. Check our website, crossexamine.org, for more. See you next week. God bless.
0: The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.